This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Nathaniel Popkin, author of The Year of the Return. I think an awful lot of families are broken up, broken apart by misunderstandings, by resentments, by memories, by parents who divide children, by childhood pains, by silences and repressions, by outright um, acts that which are meant or intended to be one thing and are interpreted entirely differently by the other party. We'll hear more from Nathaniel in just a minute. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by donating to Keeping the Show Going at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you'll receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. The more you donate, the more extras you get. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. I care so much about bringing these conversations about theme and craft to life. If First Draft is a part of your life, please contribute to keep the dialogue going. I can tell you now that some of the extras you will receive this coming month for donating include author Alex Oline talking about how she starts novels by finding a portal where she can enter the story and what features she looks for to know if she has enough traction to continue. You will also receive a writing tip from Taya Obrett, including the rituals she employs while composing, and much more. I know you're probably not at your computer right now, but when you are, consider supporting First Draft at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I can't tell you how giddy I get when a new donor joins the community. It reignites my resolve to keep reading a book a week and pursue meaningful conversations with the authors. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There is a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of all First Draft shows are right there on the site. So please come visit. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Nathaniel Popkin, writer of fiction, nonfiction, and journalism. His novels include Everything is Borrowed, Lion and Leopard, and The Year of the Return. He is also the co-editor of the anthology Who Will Speak for America. The Year of the Return is set in Popkin's hometown of Philadelphia. The year is 1976, and the plot follows two families, the Jewish Silks and the African-American Johnsons, as they are first united by the marriage of Paul Silk and Charlene Johnson, and then pulled together later by the death of Charlene. The novel opens as Paul returns home to Philadelphia from Denver after Charlene's death. Paul and Charlene move to Colorado to escape the racism of their hometown and to make a new life as journalists. As Paul comes home to confront his grief, he also must come to terms with the continuing political and social changes in Philadelphia, including the new mayor, Frank Rizzo, increased racial tensions, the aftermath of Vietnam, and family dynamics amidst all the tension. 
We began with Nathaniel Popkin discussing his initial inspiration for writing The Year of the Return. I think there are, there are probably three inspirations. One is historic. That is, it goes back to my own long and deep um, research into urban, American urban history and race, um, socioeconomics, all of those things. And the 1970s, this book takes place in 1976. The 1970s were clearly the most fraught time in American urban history, probably since the 1830s. So things were on fire, right? And I wanted to explore that a little bit. Uh, and, and I wanted to do so from, from the ground. And so I have a, a book that's about a Jewish family, the Silks, and an African-American family, the, the Johnsons. The second in, influence was my own family. So the, the Silks own a textile mill. They make sweaters. But the, the mill is failing and isn't going to last much longer. And Sam Silk, who is now the patriarch of the family, the business had been passed down to him, will do anything. He is desperate so that the business does not um, end on his watch. Um, he's desperate for survival. Um, my own family, um, my grandfather owned uh, a millinery business in which they had a factory where they finished hats and then they had a very large chain of millinery stores across the United States. And um, in the 1970s, it all completely fell apart. And so I wanted to get at some of that sense of failure. Um, and then finally, uh, this book takes place in Philadelphia in 1976, the bicentennial, um, in the run-up to the bicentennial. So it takes place from February to July 1976. And... Um, Looming over the story is a, a man, a sort of major figure in, in 20th century American urban life, and that is the mayor of the city, Frank Rizzo. And now I've uh, written about Rizzo before in film, documentary films, and other places, but I wasn't really inspired to write about him until the election of Donald Trump. And this book, uh, I wrote this book largely in 2017. Um, Rizzo is extraordinarily um, similar, or Trump is extraordinarily similar to Rizzo. They both sort of emanate from Nixon's um, sort of political ideology, political framework. One has a responsibility to respond to what's going on. And uh, uh, I had co-edited co uh, the volume called Who Will Speak for America in 2018, which, was, which we talked about on your show which was about um, the, the response to the election and its aftermath. But this was a more personal one for me. And so part of the inspiration for this book was, in fact, um, the election of Trump. So I want to touch on this feeling that you had that in 1976 was the most interesting time in urban America and the notion of you know, Vietnam, you had the aftermath of so many people coming home, um, so distraught, the the division on the streets, but also the, this idea of celebrating the 200th anniversary of the country and the optimism that you would think would be there. What an extraordinarily painful time to have to celebrate American democracy. Uh, Watergate had just happened presidency had ended in disgrace. 
Um, and a lot was exposed about the realities of American political life, much of which had been known for a very long time. But it certainly felt like a very difficult and fraught moment. And then, of course, Vietnam. And you're right. And, and the thing about Vietnam is that the extent to which it was a failure as um, as a foreign policy adventure, the extent to which it cost the lives particularly of working class Americans and particularly men of color um, is, is kind of a, a missing story in American history. And so it all did come back onto the streets of every city in this country uh, when you had both white and black men re- returning from Vietnam, those who survived. And they're returning um, to a place that is really falling apart. Crime is on the rise. There's no decade like the 70s in terms of white flight. Every city in America and also many of world cities who had experienced the industrialization, including like London and Paris, were losing tens or hundreds of thousands of people. In the decade of the 1970s, New York lost 750,000 residents net. Uh, that's an extraordinary change happening. And it's you can feel it on the streets. You can feel it when a place is falling apart. And so here you had people who who were falling apart, returning to a place that by any measure was falling apart. And yet at the same time, a, yes, we were being forced to celebrate the nation, and that was looming over us. And B, there was a flowering. The 70s were an extraordinary, excusing that word, the, the 70s were a flowering of culture in this country, of music and art, of design, and a recognition that there was something special in the American stew of life. Um, and so it wasn't entirely a downer. It wasn't entirely about despair. So I want to touch on Rizzo, but first I, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, all these big ideas that you had and then how did you fold it into a narrative, you know, because we're talking about really heady things, philosophical things, cultural, social things. But, you know, in the end, fiction is is also about story. So can you talk a little bit about the Silks and the Johnsons and how you took these ideas and embodied them in these families? Because basically the structure of the book is you have several members of, of each of these families, the, the Russian Jewish family and the African American family telling their story. And, and at the heart of that story is Paul, who is one of the sons of the man who owns the mill, Sam, and his wife, he married one of the Johnsons, Charlene, and she has died. And they had just moved back from, he just moved back from Denver after she died. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. This is a work of fiction, which means that um, it needs to come alive in the imagination of the reader in a way that, say, polemic doesn't have to. It just has to go straight to the brain, I think. But but this has to go to the heart. And uh, The Year of the Return is a, is a book of people speaking for themselves um, from their particular situation, from their despair, from their hope, from their inspiration from their torture, from their memories, all of these things. And um, these characters really came to me in like a rush. Uh, I was sitting uh, at a residency in Tennessee, 
and I had my notebook and I wrote them down. They came to me fully formed, each family, every mem- member of each family from, uh, from Paul's Uncle Harry to Charlene's granny, Elsa. Uh, they were all there. And so by that, I came to realize and recognize that they'd been living inside of me for a very long time. The Silks is some kind of familiar Jewish um, experience that I, um, that I myself have experienced. The Johnsons from long study um, of African-American life in America from doing um, dozens of oral history interviews with, with people um, from, from living in a city for a very long time that is nearly half African-American. This is where these people came from. And I found their voices right there at the surface for me. It it was not, um, there was never a question about who they were. Did you have any trepidation at all about writing half the book, the voice of an African-American family being a white Jewish man? I had terrific trepidations. I still have trepidations. Um, I still worry. Um, I still um, wonder if it's the right thing to do or if it's my privilege or my entitlement to do it. Um, I wonder if it's right. But at the same time, the Johnsons in this book came out of me. I could not have stopped them from coming from... um, from inside of me when I began to set out the characters and figure out how the lives of these two families were going to come together. There was a reality to it that was so strong that I couldn't deny it. And it would have been in fact false of me. Wanting to write a novel about the seventies, particularly 1976, such a year that's marked with, 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 with so much, um, worry and so much hope at the same time. I wanted to get into that. And it would have been wrong to have somehow ignored the African-American experience and all of that. There's a lot of doubling that happens in this book. So while some of the Jewish characters in a kind of uh, humorous way wrestle with the split among American Jews between Russian Jews and German Jews, because Paul's family, Paul's mother is, is, is German Jewish and, and Paul's father is Russian Jewish and he feels this strange difference inside of him. And there's a not dissimilar difference or, or dichotomy within the Johnsons. Half the Johnsons come from what were called old Philadelphians, that is descendants of free African Americans uh, going all the way back to the beginning of the nation or before. And then those who came during the Great Migration, um, who were called Southerners. Uh, and so that family is a mixture also of these two versions of, of a people. Um, and I think my hope with this novel and in writing these characters who come out of these very particular cultural foundations is um, to get as close to the particularness as possible, dig deeper and deeper and deeper into who they are without rushing over anything. And in that sense, they're just people. 
all of them. And that's my great hope. My hope that I've achieved with this is that it's a book of 10 or 12 people. The heart of the book for me was this idea that Charlene, she had died. She was from the Johnson family and Paul was from the Silk family. And Charlene was the impetus for her and Paul to move to Denver. At one point, she said Philadelphia has race fever and she wanted out, which, you know, you think for a young woman in in the early 70s is very brave to go across the country where Denver was still pretty, you know, new and kind of the Wild West. And then she dies and Paul comes home and he is, you know, reigniting his relationship with her family and really talking to Charlene throughout the narrative And to me, that was kind of the kernel or or like the inciting incident for the whole story. They had moved because Charlene, whose instincts Paul trusted completely from the very moment they met um, at a Martin Luther King speech in 1965, um, from that moment, he trusted her, even though she was a very young woman at the time, he trusted her implicitly. And it only took a little bit of nudging to convince him Uh, Back in 1968, when they were deciding what to do with their lives uh, once married, where they should go and live and work. And she said, you know, us as a mixed race couple, we can we cannot live here. Uh, We cannot live in a city where every breath, every step, every conversation is poisoned by racial Um, discrimination, by racism, by hate, by uh, a police force uh, that exercises brutality, by division. All of these things were real on the streets of the city, and she felt it would be far too painful to stay in Philadelphia at that time as a mixed-race couple. She hits upon Denver, which in her mind, in in her naive mind, as an Eastern-raised girl in a Big, big Eastern American city, Denver was a blank slate. I mean, they took positions at the Denver Post and they succeeded there. Uh, Charlene was a terrific, persistent, perfectionist reporter. Charlene was this kind of um, person who demanded perfection always. She never liked anything to be wrong or out of place. She was very driven to succeed. She was very driven to do the right thing. And so nothing was ever quite good enough for her. And and some of that comes to fruition for the reader as we begin to learn not only about Charlene and Paul's relationship, but Charlene's relationship with her younger brother, Monty. Monty is the, the tragic hero of this book. Monty was probably my favorite character. He was you know, he, there's other ways that these two families cross. And, and one of them is that Paul's mother, Harriet, was his English teacher. And he was a, a really a dazzling student. He was a great reader. He had a great promise. He was very intelligent. And then he was drafted to Vietnam. And when we meet him in the book, he's back and he's troubled. And we don't know if he's on drugs. We don't know what's, what's haunting him, but he's clearly haunted. And that's part of the reason that Paul is not the only reason why he's reaching out to the family, but it's really nagging at him and, and kind of nagging at 
the Johnson family of, of what's wrong with Monty. How do we reach him? We already lost our daughter. We feel like we're, we're losing our son. And he was really quite sensitive, um, the character of Monty. Monty was, as you said, perfectly a dazzling student, the kind of intellect that a teacher dies to see in the classroom. And that, you know, the kind of student that a teacher sort of grabs onto, recognizes, and wants to fertilize and fertilize any chance she can get. And that's exactly what happens here. Harriet is a high school English teacher at Overbrook High School, Will Chamberlain's high school. Uh, and she is the kind of teacher that demands excellence, who believes that they're all intelligent. And yet here is Monty who just blows her away. But Monty is most closely and personally connected in his childhood to his sister. And um, his sister who he looks up to, his sister who he wants approval from, perhaps the only person he wants approval from. Um, and at, a, at key moments in his adolescence, as he's struggling with some things, including um, his sexuality, including the ways in which he might become a, a political activist, she is not there for him because she is caught up in her own issues around her career, around Paul and the like. And she unfails him when he needs her. And then he, en he ends up going to Vietnam. And that sort of, the despair of that missed opportunity on both of their parts carries through the book. And it is one of the reasons why Paul is making, you know, he's, he's reaching out first to Granny uh, and then to the other members of the Johnson family, because he wants to connect. He, he doesn't know why exactly. And yet he's being driven to find Monty to help him, even though he knows that's white and paternalistic. Um, he wants to save Monty, even though he knows that's white and paternalistic. He just, but he doesn't know, just doesn't know what to do. Um, and, uh, Part of that, even though he doesn't quite understand it until a bit later, is his sense that Charlene had failed Monty. And um, he wants to make up for it. Paul is like a mensch in that sense. Well, I think there's also that question there of, you know, what do we owe our family members? We see it both in, you know, Charlene feeling like, I mean, is it, the question could be like, is it her job to sacrifice something about her life? You know, she had been arrested when her and Paul had been out on the street showing affection for one each other, for each other. So she was dealing with her own issues. And is it her responsibility to stay and care for her younger brother in that way? And same thing with, you know, the Silk family is they, the, the, the various characters talk about this mill that was passed down that was once very successful with Paul's grandfather and passed down to the sons and one of the sons doesn't want it. And Sam, who has it, is in such dire straits. He's kind of being taken advantage of by some employees who are kind of running a racket out of it. And, and what do we owe our families? Were you thinking about this bigger question when you were writing this? Yes, Missy, I was thinking about what we owe our families. I think an awful lot of families are broken up, broken apart by misunderstandings, by resentments, by memories, by parents who divide children, 
by childhood pains, by silences and repressions, by outright um, acts that which are meant or intended to be one thing and are interpreted entirely differently by the other party. These things fester and fester for years. I could list for you in my own family, my wife's family, my extended family, about a half a dozen relationships that have been destroyed and broken apart by these kinds of resentments. They actually feel like part of American Jewish history that uh, is underexplored. I don't think I know a single American Jewish family without this, these kinds of very painful and long-lasting, almost eternal divisions. And so what, what do we owe the families? There's something extraordinary, I hope, in this narrative of, of the year of the return, and that is the way in which it isn't the white family that's bringing the value to the black family here. In, in, in some sense, it's really the opposite. I feel like most of the females in the book, if not all of them, are, are very hopeful. The, the women have, I felt like they had a different cadence. You have Jeanette, um, who's Charlene's sister, who's very optimistic, who's going out. She's a go-getter. She's going to make her life happy the way the grandmother of the Johnson sees it. And, and Harriet, I feel like the women are very optimistic and positive and hopeful characters. And I don't know if that's something, you know, I didn't think about it when I was reading it. I thought about it now as we're talking about it, but I'm wondering if you think that is true. I think it's a great observation. Um, and I, and it's real. I think it comes from something particular in my interpretation. And that is that women in my experience are far more practical, far more flexible, far more adaptable, far less attached to ideology and rigidity and romanticism. They, in my experience and my observation, are far more capable. And this is why I'm desperate to see a president who's female are far more capable of assessing a situation and making a decision that's based on the normative facts on the ground rather than some distant idea or ideal that's controlling reason instead of reason responding to the reality in front of you. And I think all those three women particularly are exactly, they're like that. Jeanette is kind of naive. Younger sister isn't very political, though she's observed both of her siblings' um, political performances of different kinds. She sees that, yes, actually, in many ways, racial relations are getting better. And it's, she loves to see mixed-race couples walking in the streets because, A, she sees her sister in them, but she sees a sense of progress. She herself is able to get a decent job and then a second, more interesting job. She, she knows that there is life outside of her um, provincial neighborhood, that she's going to end up living downtown, that she tends to sort of hang out with the hippies in Rittenhouse Square. These are all openings of a, a bigger world to her that she, as a naive, kind of falls into. Um, and Elsa, Granny, a child of the Great Migration, has seen the ways in which her parents and grandparents adapted to the racial realities of Jim Crow America and Northern city life, which was so segregated. But how, how do you work within that framework when she looks at people she sees through them? She sees their characters far more than any kind of 
structural, uh, economic, or political system weighing over them. She sees their emotional and psychological needs and uh, hungers more than anything else. Uh, Harriet is a very practical teacher in some regards. I mean, a teacher, who, who else but a teacher has to adapt to the reality in front of them, make magic within that classroom for that hour stretch. That's what a teacher does. And absolutely, and, it, and your observation, which I hadn't thought of before, is uh, right on the money. I want to talk a little bit about Rizzo, maybe for people who don't really know that much about him. What kind of character was he? Why did you want to talk about him in the book? I wrote this book in 2017 and trying to find a way as a writer to kind of come to terms with my own feelings about what had just happened and what is still happening to the United States, to the election of Trump, to the kind of man he is having the ultimate power. And it, it occurred to me that I could possibly do that, not by, not by exaggerating or altering uh, the character of Frank Rizzo, but by just treating him in, in this um, environment of this novel. I mean, you, you couldn't live in Philadelphia from 1965 until 1980 without feeling the presence of Frank Rizzo over your shoulder. And this is a, a child of Italian immigrants who grew up with a chip on his shoulder, uh, always uh, actually uh, similar to Trump in terms of, of course, Trump was born rich, but he came from uh, the kind of family that um, never wanted to admit it was rich, and except by flaunting the wealth, that is, with a chip on its shoulder, always the elite never accepted the Trump family. The same thing, Rizzo kept trying to break through into the sort of Philadelphia aristocracy, even in the end, buying and living in a home in Chestnut Hill, which is a, a fancy wasp neighborhood of the city, uh, having grown up in South Philly. Always, every stage of his life moving up, moving up. Uh, he became deputy police commissioner uh, around the time of the 1964 race riots, in which he was sharply critical of uh, the attempt to keep peace without um, more incendiary-based behavior on the part of the police. So while the riots were happening, they sort of held back at the instruction of the police commissioner of the time. Instead of stepping in and cracking heads and inflaming the divisions within the city in that moment, they held back and the riot ended. A great deal of destruction was done, but it didn't flame out. Rizzo hated that. He felt uh, that that was the exact wrong way of handling the situation, and he took it upon himself as he rose to be deputy commissioner and then commissioner of the police to crack heads whenever possible, to intimidate, to inflame racial resentment, also um, calling the press the enemy of the people, and using blue-collar unions to shut down the Philadelphia Inquirer, literally shut it down so that no newspapers could be published on one day. The parallels are kind of extraordinary. They're not perfect. In many ways, Frank Rizzo was a real human being with a real personality, with um, depth and complexity to him as a man that Donald Trump does not have whatsoever. 
and, and, and of course, they're different people. But uh, as political players, as political actors, in moments of distress, their responses, their tactics, um, and their public personas are awfully similar, startlingly similar. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, Missy, I have uh, selected a passage from a writer that I've come to know in, in the last five years or so. Um, and the writer's name is Jean Giono. I'm going to read from his first novel. He was a, I think he was born in the 19th century, but he lived until the 1970s. A French Provençal writer, very much connected to that place. Uh, so that inspires me when there are uh, writers who are connected to place in a very deep, way, I often gravitate toward them. Giono uh, was also one of the first writers I encountered, or I would say one of the first 20th century writers, to make the environment, the non-human world, real and visceral within the human experience. In essence, to make like everything external to the human human, giving it human qualities, but also making everything that the human sees or feels or touches animal, living, bleeding. What I think he did so well as a writer, and he wrote dozens and dozens of novels, I'm going to read from his first one, was to, to see spirits inside the air and inside the breath and stones and in the wind and in trees. All of these things, he doesn't animate. They're animated within his literary voice. And he draws meaning from that animation. And then secondarily, he kind of describes all of this in these prose bursts, bursts of awareness, I would say. So he might, he might be in the middle of a scene, and then all of a sudden you're feeling the power of the tree branches and what's happening inside there, um, described as if they're animals, uh, as if the tree is, is itself an animal. So awakening for us to break down the borders between the human and nature, which is becoming more and more important as we come to confront the ecological crisis before us. Uh, and for me as a writer, my greatest desire going forward is to find within my own prose that quality uh, of breaking down the borders between the human and the non-human. Um, and so I'm going to read a, a short um, passage from Jono's um, first book, exactly 90 years old. Uh, it's called Colleen or Hill. Uh, I'm going to read in the translation by Paul April, and I hope that you enjoy it. Without knowing why, Gondron's ill at ease. He's not sick. He's full of disquiet, and this disquiet sticks in his throat like a stone. He turns his back on a big tangle of elderberry, honeysuckle, clematis, and figs that moans and writhes more loudly than the other surrounding brush. While he digs, it occurs to him for the first time that there's a kind of blood rising inside the bark, just like his own blood, that a fierce will to live makes the tree branches twist and propels these sprays of grasses into the sky. He thinks about Janet, too. Why? He thinks about Janet and he cocks his eye at the little pile of brown dirt still twitching over the crushed lizard. Blood, nerves, suffering. He's caused flesh and blood to suffer 
flesh just like his own. So all around him on this earth, does every action have to lead to suffering? Is he directly to blame for the suffering of plants and animals? Can he not even cut down a tree without committing murder? It's true. When he cuts down a tree, he does kill. And when he skies, he slays. So that's the way it is. Is he killing all the time? Is he living like a gigantic runaway barrel, leveling everything in his path? So is it really all alive? Janet has figured this all out ahead of him. Everything. Animals, plants, and who knows? Maybe even the stones, too. So, he can't even lift a finger anymore without unleashing streams of pain? He straightens himself up. Propped on his spade, he surveys the expanse of earth stretching around him, covered with scabs and wounds. The aqueduct, whose empty channel, now funnels nothing but wind, sounds like a mournful flute. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, so uh, in the first draft of The Year of the Return, Charlene was a character. We talked about Charlene earlier. She existed just like all of the other characters uh, with her first-person voice alternating with the other ones. Um, and to me, that was part of the conception of the book. I guess I wasn't too concerned with the strangeness of that for the reader or the impossibility of it uh, or what, or the fact that it would be kind of impossible. Uh, and so drafts later, I came to the conclusion, particularly after my editor said, ultimately this, this isn't going to work with Charlene um, being a character you have to take her out as a character. And it was, that was painful for me. These things happen, right? We, we writers are very self-indulgent. So I said, okay. Um, but, but Charlene needs to be present in, in the narrative because she's present, so present, particularly within her father, Charles, and within Paul. What do I do? How do I keep her present? And I did it by making her live inside of Paul's mind. So that's what I'm going, I'm going to read uh, one of Paul's short chapters, a part of one of his short chapters, so we can see the way in which Charlene lives, haunts this narrative, this situation, 1976 Philadelphia, Paul's life. Okay, so this is Paul Silk. No, Charlene, I'm not talking to you. I can't. I don't want you to hear me thinking to myself. I'm trying to get away. Tell me it isn't wrong. No, I don't need you to tell me it isn't wrong. But you are everywhere on Lebanon Avenue, in the worn upholstered chair where I sat drinking iced tea with Granny at the kitchen sink. This is you I had tried to leave in Colorado. It isn't cool to say it, but why did I come home? You laughed the city away and we turned our backs and we hid. For, hot, for five years, we hid in Denver. But in reality, you're still here this city and you, and you and it. You needed to leave because you couldn't escape it. The cancer inside you was the cancer of Lebanon Avenue. And what am I doing back here? Reversing time? Even here in this strange house? Your things are right over there. Your earthen smell, Charlene. Your visage and grannies. The night of your confusion. The night you left me. Now Monty's trapped me in his hot, 
an unctuous fit and shriveled me so I don't know what I want or how to think. You're a literalist, Paul, you would say. I would say, so are you. No, you're wrong, you would reply. I like real things. Only real things matter. You, you take everything said as real, to love me forever, to love you forever. Forever is a literal word. I'd never let a writer use it in the newspaper. It's an impossible word. It has no place in a journalist's lexicon. To keep you close by, I think I need to let your brother go. You understand? I need to be free. He's trapped me, even if, Charlene, the spit was intended for you. It reached my bones. I want you to know. It's settled there. I can feel it burning in the dark of night. Where do you write? I very often write uh, at, I have a 15-foot-long desk, which is about five feet from my bed, around a kind of half wall. And that's often where I write. Uh, this book, however, uh, I was lucky enough to travel to two residencies in 2017, uh, one in Tennessee and one in Iceland. And it was at those residencies that with my typewriter, which I managed to kind of ridiculously, I drafted the year of the return uh, over the course of 2017, not here at this desk, um, but rather at those two residencies. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I never get away from writing. In fact, what I do to get away from writing is completely integral to my process as a writer, and that is to walk. So if I'm here in the city, I could walk long distances through neighborhoods, not thinking of anything except the way things are always changing and noticing those changes or noticing my own footsteps or whatever. My mind clears pretty well when I do that. When I'm in the thrush of writing, uh, I walk uh, at residencies. I write and then I walk. And I often talk to myself out loud because one can do that when one is not in the city and one is in a, uh, a place that is quieter and more empty of people. Uh, so I, I talk to myself. It's kind of embarrassing, but it's true. Then there's a third part of this answer that actually maybe is the actual answer. To get away from writing, while I'm walking, often I have a camera with me, and on my camera I have a macro lens. The way I lose myself is to pull out my camera with its macro lens and photograph the very, very tiny, the very, very close, and my lens gets so close to the subject, an insect or a leaf or whatever it is, I get as close as I possibly can and still able to focus in some ways. And, to, and I completely lose myself. I could be on another planet in that moment. Uh, I guess that's the answer to your question. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a writer's group, uh, eight other authors uh, who live here in Philadelphia. I don't seek anyone's feedback until I get theirs. And at a macro level, their feedback is abandon ship or, you know, just keep going. How have you dealt with rejection? gone through every stage of grief, I think. <laughs> uh, I think I got about somewhere between 75 and 85 rejections last year in 2018. I'm still not prepared for it. It's still very painful. But I think my way of dealing with it is never to delete the rejections from your inbox. They, they're just there in some um, masochistic way. They just sit there. And 
um, maybe their inspiration for me as well. They've certainly driven me to terrible despair, wanting to give up. Uh, they've also driven me to comedy and laughing and hysteria, like funny hysteria as well. And what is your favorite word? I don't think I have a favorite word. I don't know if I do, but I chose two that we, that, to talk about. One is invisible because um, it seems to me that the job of the novelist particularly is to make all different kinds of things that are invisible not visible, but sensible in some way to the reader. So I'll leave it at that. that. There's invisible. And then another word which I've started to think about a lot, and I thought about a lot in writing The Year of the Return, and that is cruelty. Well, what is it about us human beings that makes us need to be cruel to one another, to ourselves, to the earth? to other animals, to other plants, to little insects, to children, to strangers, to people who are far away that are different from us. Why do we need to be so cruel? And can we please find a way to end this era of cruelty that we're living in? That's why I came to mind when you asked for a favorite word. It's not a favorite. It's just a terrifying word. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was really fun to talk with you, Missy. Uh, you're, you're so terrific. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Nathaniel Popkin, author of The Year of the Return. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. And check out my new website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. And please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member, including cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show and writing tips. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. That's just $1.25 for four shows a month. A great deal for hours of conversation about theme and craft in the literary life. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.